This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is Jane McGonigal. Jane is the Director of Games Research and Development at the Institute for the Future, which is a nonprofit research group in Palo Alto, California. She's also a best-selling author, and her latest book is called Imaginable, How to See the Future Coming and Feel Ready for Anything. Jane and I had a fascinating conversation about her work as a future forecaster and why her background as a video game designer gives her a unique perspective in the field of future thinking. As you'll hear today, Jane has shifted my view on video games, and we talked about the game she created that helped her heal from a traumatic brain injury. Jane and I also talk about how we can all train ourselves to anticipate the future, and how it begins with imagining the world that we truly want. And I got to hear some of the 10-year predictions that Jane is most excited about right now. I loved hearing Jane's vision on all of this. It's rare that I find something that completely changes my mindset, but Jane makes a brilliant case for giving yourself permission to spend time pondering the future. All right, let's get to my chat with Jane McGonigal. First of all, so you're a game designer and a futurist, of course, two careers that Mm. in your case go together very well, but maybe not intuitively go together. And I'm fascinated by both. And as a mother of a 16-year-old boy who likes to be on video games, I have to say you really changed my perspective mm. in, you know, researching you and understanding your perspective on games and how they can be so beneficial. So thank you for that because you've removed some friction. That's my favorite thing to hear is that if we can remove the friction and some of the game anxiety and help parents see the strengths in their children that are being developed and really reflect them back and validate those strengths. It, it's so healing, I think, for families. 
It is. And I, I really recognize this generational thing that, you know, you managed to jump over, but where whatever we're raised with is what we know. And that's the paradigm, right? So then these new things come in and we get threatened and destabilized by the idea that like rock and roll is going to corrupt <laughs> our people or, you know, our, the internet is going to be terrible. That actually may turn out to be true. I don't know. But I think in my generation, it was this, you know, I guess I would have been the first generation to really have these digitally native kids, right. Who grew up in this era fully. And I did really worry about the amount of time spent gaming because I I just have no frame of reference for it. I don't do it. And I just kind of assumed that it would be deleterious for their development or whatever. So you tell a great story about kind of end of life care and the the things that Mm. people regret on their deathbed and that there are tenets of gaming that are sort of the antidote to those things. And so for all the parents out there who listen to this podcast, I would just love for you to, if you don't mind, kind of surmise that and help us all collectively feel a little bit better about this as you have made me feel. Oh, sure. Well, I think the most important thing to understand about video games is that like all games, going back in history, board games, sports, that they are designed to help us activate our strengths, strengths like focusing our attention, controlling our attention, what are we paying attention to, developing a kind of resilience in the face of obstacles or setbacks because games are designed for us to be bad at them the first time we try them and we have to be willing to be bad at something and stay engaged and not give up. And they are designed to tap into our creativity so we can try different strategies, different approaches. They help us be better learners and teachers because if we don't know how to succeed at a game, we can turn to somebody else. And then as we get better, we become teachers. So there's a whole teaching culture around it. And what we find in research on the impacts of video games is that spending many hours a week intentionally engage with things that are challenging, having that experience of failing, but learning from our failures, not giving up, being willing to ask other people for help and having that aha moment where, wow, I learned something new. I developed a skill. I achieved a goal. When we're doing that in our spare time as our favorite thing to do, that actually develops a mindset that transfers to the rest of our lives. So that when we're tackling a new subject in school, or we're trying to master a new hobby, or we're we're going for a new career switch, whatever we're trying to do, we can bring that confidence in our ability to learn and improve through our own efforts and attention and our willingness to ask others for help. And that is, I think, the most important thing as we you know, try to figure out, well, how much time should I spend playing games? If you are learning something new, if you are still getting better at it, you have room to grow. If you are taking on that teaching role or you're asking others for help, then every day you're practicing things that are incredible personal strengths. And so it's not, you know, a waste of time. It's actually an opportunity to develop the mindsets and skills that help us be successful, not just in the game, but any obstacle that we choose to tackle, or even the ones that we don't choose to tackle, but we can try to bring that gameful mindset. And does the research suggest that those obstacles that you face in a game and that 
it's the same as a real life obstacle that like, you don't necessarily have to be in real life in order to learn those things of resilience and Mm. it, it can happen in a simulation. Absolutely. It's funny. I often say that the opposite of play isn't work, which we're taught to believe, you know, from a very young age, but in reality, we work very hard when we play games. And I'm sure you've seen this with your son, the amount of focus, attention, mental effort, sometimes physical stamina, because these games get our adrenaline going and we're really have to actually, you know, monitor our breathing and, and really have that stamina too. There's a lot of hard work that goes into play. And so it is a real experience of doing things that are hard. And I have seven-year-old twin daughters and, you know, my favorite questions to ask them when they're playing video games, which they have like their own little tablets and they play games and it's great. I ask them, you know, what's hard about this game? What are you getting better at? What's the toughest thing you've achieved in this game? And then they tell me stories and those are stories of grit and resilience and determination and creativity. And I just, I love to be able to reflect that back to them and say, okay, I see you. I see what you're doing. You are hanging in there. You are getting better. You're amazing. And we can, we can do that with ourselves, with the games that we play, you know, ask yourself, what does it take to be good at this? What is the hardest thing I've accomplished? And we can see those strengths in ourselves as well. And I loved, which I had never thought of this idea that the avatar that you create for yourself in a video game is like the ultimate free self-expression of, of who you might see yourself as. And, you know, in life, we're sort of ruled by all these societal norms and that I don't know what, what the language is, but like signing up and designing your avatar mm. is actually this incredible moment for your child or grown up, you know, to really express some aspect of them that they haven't expressed in the real world. Absolutely. Especially for young people who may not feel like they have total control, even over how they express themselves. Maybe their, their community is more conservative than they feel in their heart or their parents have rules that they have to follow still. But in, in the game world, they can really explore, you know, every aspect of self-presentation. And it's not just the sort of the physical aspects, but there's a real personality aspect too, even in a game like Fortnite, where you can essentially equip your avatar with dance moves. And so like, how do you want to present yourself? You know, do you have swagger? Do you have like a, a joie de vivre and you're like <laughs> floating around and just to even be able to experiment it's almost with different personalities, right? It's not just the physical sense of the avatar. And we do see in the research that young people who feel free to explore that aspect of of their identities in games do build confidence over time to be their more authentic selves. It's it's pretty cool. Where were you about five years ago when my son was playing <laughs> all the time and I was ready to pull my hair out? I do just want to touch a little bit on the game that you designed called Super Better because mm. I never could have imagined that a video game, again, totally acknowledging my antiquated way of thinking around this that you have absolutely changed, that a video game could actually be carry a deep wellness benefit. And you had a head injury. I'm so sorry that you went through that and a very, what sounds like painful and scary recovery. Will you talk a little bit about what that was like for you and where the, the catalyst to, to start super better came from? Yes. So 
Super Better started as essentially my last ditch effort to save my own life. I did suffer a severe concussion. I didn't know it at the time when I was in the thick of the vertigo and the, you know, these excruciating headaches and nausea. And I couldn't think or remember things. I didn't know at the time, but one in three people who suffer a severe concussion develop suicidal ideation. And that was my experience, not having had those types of thoughts before. Suddenly my brain is telling me you're never going to get better because it was the same symptoms. You know, at first they said, well, you'll feel better in a week. And then they're like, okay, you'll feel better in 30 days. Mm, okay. Maybe 90 days. And then 90 days are gone. And I'm still feeling exactly the same way. And my brain, you know, you just give up, you know, you're going to be a burden to your husband, to your family. What was interesting is I don't think I my, you know, my soul, my spirit did not want to die, but there was something happening in my brain with the inflammation and, and my inability to anticipate positive futures. Because I learned later when you have a severe concussion, your brain wants you to basically curl up in a ball and not do anything because you need all of your resources to heal and you don't want to get hit again, which can be fatal. So your brain's like stay in a ball, but that feels like depression, severe depression. And so I was, I was lucky that by that point in my life, you know, I'd finished my PhD research, looking at the psychology of games and how that mindset might trickle over into everyday life. And somehow at my absolute lowest moment, I had this like one spark of inspiration where I thought, wait, okay, my research says games help us feel more optimistic and motivated. It's easier to ask other people for help. If I can turn this into a game, maybe I can, can, can stay alive. It wasn't, you know, a computer game when I started, it was like a little notebook and I was writing down, maybe I can earn points, you know, sort of level up my strengths. What, what do I want to do today to feel like I was loving? Cause when you have a concussion, you can't be productive, which used to be how I measured my self-worth. So I'm like, what else can I measure? I'll measure lovingness and kindness and courage and things like that. And I would have my friends and family give me points at the end of the day. Like, okay, I saw what you did. You know, one day I baked cookies for the baristas at the coffee place at the bottom of our apartment building. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, yeah, you, that was kindness. That was great. I did something. Couldn't do anything for myself, but I could bake someone cookies and just starting to give myself quests that focused on things that were still challenging, but that I could successfully achieve and tracking my progress and growth and being able to talk to friends and family about what was hard for me. And that was really the most important thing is I could, I found it easier to ask for help. And I found it easier to explain how hard it was for me in this more positive, gameful mindset. And it worked so well for me. I started blogging about it. I made some YouTube videos and I just started getting emails and Facebook messages from people saying, okay, I'm just started playing my own version. I have my own notebook and I'm doing it for, I just got divorced or I lost my job or I have Crohn's and I'm, it's a new diagnosis and I have to adapt to it. And after all this feedback, I'm like, okay, let me make a digital version, make an app, make a website. And over the course of a few years, we were able to get researchers to validate the method. So independent clinical trials, randomized control trials, it does seem to relieve concussion symptoms faster. 
It helps with anxiety, depression, and chronic pain. It's been used in children's hospitals and sports medicine with concussions. And it's a free app and it's a free website. And it's just something I made that I hope people find benefit from. We've had more than a million people use it to recover from depression, anxiety, and concussion. And I do think with long COVID, which is very similar to these sort of like mysterious concussions, you have brain fog, you don't understand what's going on. You need to ask for help and learn to live with a new body, a new brain. I'm hoping that it, we have not done studies on, on long COVID use yet, but it seems like it should also be beneficial for that, for that cases as well. Amazing. So fantastic. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Speaking of COVID, so absolutely bizarrely, from my point of view, <laughs> you, I think it was in 2008 and 2010, you started to run with your peers, a kind of simulation of what would happen in a global respiratory pandemic. Yes. One was for the Institute for the Future, which is a nonprofit organization that I work with. And the other was for the World Bank. It was funny. They didn't start necessarily as tools to predict what would happen. We wanted people to have a firsthand experience of essentially pre-feeling the anxiety and shock of a pandemic and to have a chance to think through how they might help themselves and others, how they would adapt, what they would need and who they would trust for information and advice. And it was essentially like a, basically a way to, you know, play, play the future before you live it. And many of the details of the simulation, which, you know, we had, we had 8,000 people in the first game and 20,000 in the second game, and they were living their real lives for six weeks or 10 weeks every day, wake up. Okay. Here's what I have to do today. How would that be affected by pandemic? Okay. My kids are going to school in reality. How might their schools be affected in a pandemic? And they just went through every aspect of their lives trying to anticipate the disruptions and trying to, again, like pre-feel the discomfort, the shock, the anxiety. So if we ever did wake up in that future, we would feel ready for it and maybe not deny the reality, be able to adapt faster, act faster. And that did turn out to be a significant benefit of having participated because when the real 2020 hit, I started to hear from participants very early in January, 2020, which was, I think, you know, a little earlier than a lot of people really understood how significant it would become. 
the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were saying things like, you know, I'm not experiencing as much shock as my peers, less anxiety because they had a sense of clarity. I think a lot of anxiety comes from uncertainty. Am I really going to have to cancel this? Am I really going to have to start doing this or following? You know, if you have the clarity of having essentially pre-lived it, then you can move past anxiety to taking the action you need to take. And so all that was amazing. And then the weird thing that happened over the course of 2020 is that we saw in the real world, people did what players said they would do when they were playing in ways that surprised pandemic experts in 2020, but did not surprise me because players had said, I'm going to keep going to church. Yeah, I know it's you know a deadly outbreak, whatever, but this is so important to me. This is my value, my deepest value in community. And of course, that turned out to be the biggest super spreading events. We had people practice wearing face masks, you know, wear them to a party. How does that go? Wear it to school. What's it like? And we saw it, there was a physical stamina that had to be developed that people found difficult to wear a mask for many hours. They reported that it was hard for them, even if they wanted to do it. People talked about this, the social friction. They didn't like it. They wanted to see their friends and family's faces. So we were able to anticipate that even though it sounds like a very reasonable thing to ask people to do, that there would be social reasons and, and physical reasons that it would be harder than experts predicted. And there's just this whole list of things that it turns out asking ordinary people, what would you need? What would you do that we can better anticipate how society will react to things that we've never lived through before? And for me, that was a big aha moment. It's why I'm, I'm excited. I'm still running simulations. We're simulating different crises or disruptions now, because we've, we've all now had the experience of living through a respiratory pandemic, but I think it will help us all again, experience less shock. Like how could this happen? It's why my new book is called imaginable because we spent the last, you know, two years saying, Oh, it's unimaginable. Like what's happening. Oh, it was unthinkable what we've had to do, but we can imagine it. We can think it. And then if we have to live it, we'll be ready. Did the simulations fall under your role as a futurist or as a game designer or both? Yeah. What a fun question. It was both. When I first started working with the Institute for the Future, I was a full-time professional game developer and they invited me to see, well, you know, could we make games that help people prepare for the future? And so the Superstruck game in 2008, that was really my second big attempt at trying to create the type of game that would give people a chance to get ready for anything. And you have to use a lot of futurist skills to design these simulations because you're trying to figure out what is it worth preparing for? I mean, we could imagine a hundred different stories, but what are we most likely to actually live through, right? So you do your research, you talk to experts, and then you try to create a, a scenario in which no matter who you are, you can effectively play in that scenario. And I think that's where my game design skills allowed me to do something different in the field of future thinking than had been done before. Because if you create an online game, you know, everybody has to be able to play. They have to be able to understand what's going on in this virtual world. What are my opportunities? What are the, the challenges or the dangers? And 
I think before essentially I, I invented this genre of future forecasting games, there wasn't really a good way for just like ordinary people who don't work in the future sphere to really get to play and say, okay, I understand how this would affect me. And I can, I can tell these stories. I can imagine these moments for myself that feel real and meaningful and, and relevant to my own life. So what exactly is a futurist? You could ask probably every futurist would have a different answer, but I would say that a futurist is someone who learns a systematic way of studying what is happening in the world today. So real things that are already happening, new technologies, new social movements, new behavior trends or culture shifts, what's going on with the climate. You look at everything that's happening today and you learn a systematic way to project where that might take us. And especially in how they intersect, you know, how does climate change intersect with changing human migration patterns, intersect with fashion and, and young people, you know, wanting to move away from fast fashion. Like you, you look, you start to pull together every trend and movement and driver of change to create a really holistic vision of the world that we might wake up in. And so there's a lot of research involved, but also a lot of creativity because you're trying to imagine something that doesn't exist yet, which I think is where my background as a game designer is helpful, right? You have to create a world from scratch that people can look around and say like, ooh, I would like to spend time here or ooh, I would not like to spend time in this future. Tell me what we can do to avoid it. So that's a professional futurist, but I think anybody can be a futurist by learning to just practice some of these future thinking habits like looking for the clues, these signals of change, these small, little, maybe local innovations or disruptions, and then imagining, well, what if it wasn't just, you know, one school doing this or one startup doing this Mm. or one city doing it, but it was everybody doing it. And then you extrapolate that out. Exactly. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. So what are those indicators that you're looking for? Like if you are assessing present day, what are the indicators of like a, of a seed of something that will become a growing trend that you would then extrapolate out to see what the impact would be in 10 years time? Are there data points around like, you know, how many, if it's in the media, a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. or like, or is it just much more organic and kind of what resonates with you? Like what are those indicators? Well, the first indicator is something stops you in your tracks and makes you say, wow, I have not seen that before. This is weird. I don't understand it yet. We often say, if you don't feel like you understand it yet, you don't have a strong opinion. Is this, is this good? Is this bad? What is the motivation for this? That's usually an indication that you have found an initial clue to the future. And then you essentially try to follow that trail and you look for, okay, this is, you know, one 
signal, are other people doing this? Am I finding this showing up on social media more? It's starting to show up in the news more. So for example, one signal of change that I I just found last week, there are cities in Japan where they are paying young people's rent if they're willing to move to cities and towns that have on the whole an older population, because there's Japan, their population's aging, but that's also true in the United States and in much of Europe and other parts of the world. And they, they want the society to feel, I guess, less stratified. They don't want to just have a bunch, you know, old people in this village, the village dies out. They want young people. They so have age, more age equality, if, which is an idea that I don't think we've really talked about a lot in, in the past, but it's, it, it might be a thing in the future. How do we get young people more sort of equally distributed in our communities and our cultures? Because young people are where culture comes from and ideas come from and, and the vibrancy of the community really depends on them. So they're just paying people's rent. And to me, this is an interesting signal because if you see something that could solve other problems, so we call it multi-solving. So not only would it possibly solve aging inequality, but it could solve things like young people not being able to afford their homes or rent. There's like a, a vibrancy to it, I think, as a solution. So now I file that away in my mind and I think, okay, it's happening in Japan. Is that a weird thing that's only happening in Japan? Or do we start to see other cities in the US experiment with it? And if you find a signal of change that you like, you can become an advocate for it, right? The, there's this old saying, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. So maybe I find a signal of change that I like and I start, you know, talking about it on social media and showing up at city council meetings and saying like, hey, want to try this here? And they're doing it there. We could experiment too. We could become a signal of change ourselves. What are the things that you're seeing right now that you think? In 10 years time. I mean, the reason that I keep saying 10 years time is because it's a significant kind of chapter that, that 10 year window, right. That you write about saying like, it takes generally 10 years for the inception of something to become kind of mainstream and widely adapted and really have shifted culture. So what are the things that you are thinking about right now that I don't know, either keep you up at night or make you excited? One of the things that I always look for are signals of hope. So realistic stories that we can tell about a future that we want. And so I think I should talk a little bit about what gives me hope for the future of our climate, right? Please do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a major study of young people around the world that was published a few months ago in the Lancet Journal for Planetary Health. And they talked to tens of thousands of young people between the ages of 18 and 25. And a majority of them agreed with the statement, humanity is doomed and I personally have no future. And when they dug into that, it was all tied to climate change and the failure of governments to act to adequately address it. So, you know, we're living in a time where, our, where people literally can't imagine or our way out of this. And they have all this anxiety and dread, especially young people. So, you know, when I look ahead 10 years, one thing I'm excited about is the electrification of everything. So, you know, for cooking, for transportation, for just, if we can electrify everything, then we can power it completely with clean energy, wind, solar, 
And there are lots of very smart, serious people saying, if we electrify everything, we're going to create this whole new uh, like category of jobs, new skills that people will need to learn for this clean energy transition. So when I think ahead to the future that I'm excited about and you know what might my kids be doing when in 10 years from now, they'll be going to college. What might they be studying and getting ready to contribute to the world? We actually have a pretty fast track path to fixing all this climate chaos. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by not talking enough about the solutions and the, the, the path forward on that. So, you know, electrify everything. Basically, what can ordinary people do? Just don't ever for the rest of your life buy anything that requires a fuel source that is not electrified. So if you have to buy a car, if you have to put something in your kitchen, just we can individually make a pledge. It's electric, baby. (laughs) I love that. And I think this is where, you know, politically speaking, this becomes such an issue, but I see over and over again, the consumer really shaping outcomes of things, right? So if we as consumers are making small choices in our homes, like making those decisions, showing corporations with our dollars, what we want, like that does really shape outcomes. Yes. I mean, you can make laws, but the fastest drivers of change are the big global companies that have all that money and resources to spend actually making things different. So I think that is correct. Yeah. And what are the things, like, are there things that that worry you about 10 years from the future? Or is it sort of endemic to your thinking is this I forget what you call it, like radical optimism. That mm. oh, yeah, urgent optimism. Urgent right? optimism, right? Which is like keeping that balance in our imagination of being aware of risks and challenges, but also filling our brain with the positive ideas and technologies and solutions that would help us avoid those challenges or solve them. You know, I mean, people do ask me, like, well, what could I learn more about to be better prepared for the future? And I mean, should we talk about some stuff that's a a little bit challenging to think about? I think the biggest topic for the future and and the most important thing to prepare ourselves for and our communities for is climate migration. I think we are going to be able to long-term solve the problems of climate change, but over the next decade, next 20 years, people will need to move Mm -hmm. as parts of the earth become less habitable, right? Extreme heat, wildfires. I live in California. And I mean, you you just don't want to live here for some parts of the year because you can't breathe the air. You can't go outside. You're constantly, you have your go bag ready to evacuate. So there's an opportunity now to think ahead and prepare ourselves for a flexibility in our sense of home. You know, how do we create homes How do we take home with us if we need to move? How do we prepare ourselves mentally for conversations about, you know, is this, is this a time to leave? And I, you know, it's interesting. My husband, his parents had to flee Iran during the the revolution and back in the seventies. And we often talk about, you know, how did they know when it was time to go? And you know, it, that's something when it comes to climate migration that 
we will benefit from giving ourselves like the luxury of, we maybe still have a decade before we might need to move, but we can start to talk now about what, how much risk or, or how much change are we willing to live with before we would want to leave? And, mm. and if we do need to leave, what are the barriers? You know, are there legal barriers? Are there, you know, economic barriers? Are there like, we feel we have these community ties and we don't want to abandon our community. And it's, it's not necessarily a fun thing to think about. I mean, my challenge as a futurist is I'm always asking people to think about things that are, could be, you know, difficult to think about. They could be painful to think about. We, we don't want to leave our communities or we don't want to imagine how extreme the weather might get that would force us to leave. But pre-thinking that now so that we have time to make those good decisions that we're happy about, that we would be excited about, you know, where could we create our family's new legacy, right? I mean, we could, we could try to find the positive path forward. And also, you know, if we live somewhere where it will be climate resilient, how can we prepare ourselves to be welcoming? In the last decade, I would say many Western societies have not been great at welcoming immigrants or refugees. We feel a lot of anxiety often, economic anxiety, sort of culture anxiety. And this is something we're all going to have to address as a planet because every serious scientist you talk to says hundreds of millions of people will be on the move to more climate resilient spaces. Have you uncovered that in your research? Yes. The places that are going to be hardest hit in the U.S. will be the Southwest, parts of California, going north, going towards lakes seems to be, you know, if, if you were looking for a safe spot to head towards in the U.S., certainly there will be northern European countries. I mean, it's interesting. Some places in Russia are forecast to be really climate resilient, and we can start to imagine weird things like you know, what if Russia has the most space for climate migrants and maybe they decide to open their borders and they want to rebuild their society? We'll just Double. avoid the Chernobyl part. I mean, really, it, so it's, it's like a lot of weird stuff. And, and an ordin- a person might say, why do I need to think about this? I'm not going to move to Russia. This is like not my personal future. I do think that there is benefit towards imagining things that we might encounter in the news one day that we might have friends or relatives living through it, essentially we're building calluses for the weird stuff that might happen so that we feel like we recognize it and we understand it and we can remove some of the just i don't know the sense of whiplash i think even in global news events that don't affect us directly i think we've all had the experience of scrolling social media and being like oh my god oh my god i can't even think about this but people who have seen these things coming tend to be able to have more equanimity i think in the face of what other you know people experience as as a kind of social whiplash Yeah. I mean, just having all of us live through the pandemic, I was surprised at how adaptable we were. Like Mm -hmm. I, it really did surprise me because obviously life as we knew it completely stopped. And I think I observed in myself, right. This 
thing that I hadn't before, which was this, this ability to imagine, extrapolate this out, like, okay, well, what will the plan be if it, if things get worse and like, what do we have on our side and sort of cultivating that optimism and, and finding a sort of calm and resilience, because sometimes I do have to say, I get very down on, on humanity. But in that respect, I, I sort of marveled at our ability to adapt and this flexibility that we all kind of had. And, and it does make me feel hopeful because I do think we all get very calcified in this way of thinking and living. And I think what the pandemic did to a certain extent was undo some of that and, and let that unfurl a little bit and let us imagine a different world and, and who we would be in that world. Absolutely. I think we, we are living in a unique moment in human history right now in which every human on this planet has just borne witness to how fast things can change, how dramatically we can change how we live, how we work, how we learn, who we are. And we made changes that we didn't want to make. Maybe now going forward, as we move into a post-pandemic world, we can keep that radical flexibility. We can bring with us that awareness, right? That we can change so much faster than we thought possible, but we can do it intentionally now, right? To make the world that we want. And my, my greatest hope is that we will all carry this with us for the rest of our lives, especially younger generations now who have this opportunity for the rest of their lives to refuse to accept that change is impossible, or this is just how things are. I mean, that is, that is something we know deep in our bones is in our blood. Now we, we, we know that we can change anything. And it's just a matter of, I think now intentionally designing Mm. personal big changes, the social societal scale, big changes. And the reason that I get so excited about futures thinking and and helping people play with future scenarios is that those are the habits that keep our mind unstuck, right? Because I do think there's a danger. We could all kind of recover from this pandemic and then we just get recalcified, right? As you said. So we do need mental habits, community practices that help us stay in this amazing moment of openness to transformation and playing with futures is a good way to do that. What about changing back, going backwards, backslides? I guess I'm asking this personally because I feel like we're living in this time right now where we're backsliding into an old way of thinking, you know, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, for example. So even no matter what side of the issue that on, just the idea that something was accepted law for 50 years has been repealed or that things move forward and then change back. How do you think of change in mm. that respect? And is there kind of an arc that you have noticed things change towards and there are oscillations in that? Yes, what a good question. First of all, we have at the Institute for the Future a saying that in order to look forward, you need to look back at least twice as far as you're trying to imagine the future. And what you will see if you study the course of change in society over centuries is that there can be backslides in policies and laws. So what we are seeing now with Roe v. Wade being overturned, the policies are going backwards. But what you don't see generally are 
beliefs about rights going backwards. Once people believe that they have a right to something, right? You know, women have a right to vote, to own property, to work, that, you know, that we don't go back and believe that slavery is acceptable, right? That there are certain hard won changes in beliefs about rights that do not go backwards, even if we have the sort of stop, start, you know, stuttering. And so I think that is something to be optimistic about, even as you look now as whether it's voting rights being rolled back or, you know, women's rights, migrants' rights, that the opinions are not changing. The opinion polls continue to move forward. More people believe in more rights, more broadly and more inclusively. And that is something that I can't think of any example in history where that belief has gone back. Politics, laws, there's a gamesmanship to it. You can pass laws that don't reflect a majority opinion. You can seek power and change backwards, even if people don't support that change. But eventually, I think, as the belief grows and the, the feeling that we deserve certain rights, like that will not go backwards and that will continue to drive what I see as positive change. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful, actually. And I'm glad that you have data. <laughs> so going back to, to what you were touching on earlier, are there ways that we can commit to like a practice of mm. agility and open-mindedness? Like how, what are yours? Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a game you can play that I played all the time, but I have like running lists around my house and on my computer and my phone. It's called a hundred ways. Anything could be different in the future. And to play this game, you, your goal is to make a list of a hundred things that are true today. And you can do this about your own life. You know, say I, I live in San Francisco, you know, I have a dog, like I'm an American citizen, whatever is true, just write up a bunch of facts. And then one at a time you rewrite each fact so that the opposite is true or so that a really radical alternative is, that, and you just write it and you don't worry about it making sense or being plausible, just whatever pops into your mind. It's actually it can be very interesting clues to our, like our deepest values, our hopes, our goals, like what pops into our mind when we, when we rewrite these facts of today, you can do this for, you know, a workplace, for a community. You can do it for a topic like the future of food, the future of learning. Oftentimes I'll work with groups. You know, I was working with a famous ballet conservatory, like what's true about ballet and dance, right? Like you get older, you no longer dance, right? What if most professional ballet performances were featuring dancers over the age of 40, right? What kind of choreography would we create? What stories would we tell? How would we change the art form? And so you flip the facts of today, and then you use that as inspiration to both use your imagination to explore the possibilities, but also to go look for those signals of change. So people often ask me, you know, where do I find signals of change? Like it's hard. It can be hard to notice change. We see what we see. We interact with the same people. So this game is a great way to give yourself things, specific things to look for. I was playing this game with a group of local elected officials in California. So like mayors and, and city councils and state legislators. 
and we were talking about the future of democracy. And so one of the facts of today is there's a minimum voting age, right? So we flipped that fact that there's no minimum voting age. Babies can vote. Nobody in the group was aware of any signals of change to make that a reality. But if you just type your flipped facts into Google, you will be amazed what you can discover. So we literally <laughs> typed babies can vote into Google and we found there are movements all over the United States to dramatically lower the voting age. Some places 16, some places seven, some places zero. In fact, more than half of states currently have there's legislation drafted up for consideration to dramatically lower the voting age. Mm-hmm. It turns out as a mental health intervention for young people who feel like they have no power and they're so anxious about things like gun laws and violence and climate change. So as a way to give young people a sense that they have power and hope for the future, there's all sorts of philosophical arguments about, you know, why young people have the longest to live with the consequences of our elections. And so we shouldn't disenfranchise them. But now, so suddenly works. I mean, I never knew about this movement. Now I mentioned it to my daughters. They're like, we have to lead this movement. They're seven. They're like, let's start. What do we do? And so just by playing this game, flipping the facts of today into things that sound ridiculous at first, then you use them as clues and you can discover other people are doing really interesting things. You never heard about it. Now you know it. Do you want to get involved? Do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to experiment with it? So this is, if you just take one future thinking practice and, and put it into your life, you can play this with your kids. You can play it at work, play it with a partner. My husband and I do it all the time. When we feel stuck, we're like, oh, this is like whatever way like our life isn't working right now. Let's, let's, let's flip the facts. So that would be my suggestion for what to play with. I love that idea. I really do. I, I love the how borderless everything becomes if you if you play that. You said in the book something that really struck me, which was, I believe you said foresight is a human right. Mm, yes. And that really resonated with me because, you know, if I think about somebody that has the emotional safety, like if, I don't know, if you're talking about the hierarchy of needs, like mm-hmm. you're talking about somebody who's, needs are, are met and, and they can engage in this, right? Like to be able to have the space and permission to have foresight, to imagine a future, I could see it being kind of pigeonholed as like, oh, this is, you know, a luxury. And I, I love the idea that you characterize foresight as a human right. And so I wanted to ask you, about that. What do you mean by foresight being a human right? And why is it so important to give ourselves the time and space to cultivate foresight? Mm. I think there are two components to that. And the first one you just eloquently described, if we feel in danger, if we are economically insecure, food insecure, if we feel hopeless, the future is hard to imagine, right? We become hyper-focused on what we need to do now to survive. And that that inhibits us from being able to be drawn by the possibility of the future, right? We know that when people think on longer timelines, they think more 
ambitiously for themselves. They think more optimistically about what kinds of positive change are possible. They have more innovative ideas for what they might want to invent or create or give to the world. And when we live with scarcity or insecurity, the brain basically shuts down the future thinking circuitry and says, no, you don't get a future because you have to focus on today. So if we accept that the right to dream about the world we want to help create and the change that we want to be a part of, if we accept that that is a fundamental human right, then it does create essentially a mandate to make sure that people do feel secure and do have enough abundance in their lives to move out of that hyper-focus on the present. So it, it does become, as you said, it's, it, it lifts everything when you're trying to give people that, that space and permission to dream of, of the future. The other reason why I say that foresight is a human right is that too many people feel disempowered from creating the change that they want to see in the world. They feel like, you know, the power is, you know, with CEOs or it's with, you know, elected officials or, but it's not in the community. It's not in their own hands. And we deserve to have a voice at the table, whether it's, you know, seven-year-olds who want the right to vote or, you know, a community that is, is likely to be affected by climate change and wants to be heard on this issue. And I think the right to the future is something we need to protect, the right to be heard in a meaningful way. The future belongs to all of us. We're all going to wake up in the same world, right? The equalizing factor about the future is we all get to it at the same time. Like You can't get there early, right? We're, we're all going to get to the year 2030, you know, on that same day. And so we should we should draw from that equalizing factor to make sure that everybody feels that they have some control and some voice in, in the big decisions that, that shape the world we'll wake up in. Thanks for joining my chat with Jane McGonigal. If you haven't read her book yet, pick up a copy of Imaginable. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.